Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. We're looking at, uh, as we said, at, uh, at those points where you would go from, you know, the lower mainland up into the interior, for example. So you're looking, you know, like Highway 1 or the Coquihalla or the, uh, the Hope Princeton or ferry terminals, for example. All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. And that was the voice of B.C. Solicitor General Mike Farnworth talking about B.C.'s looming COVID crackdown, highway blockades and checkpoints set to be deployed at ferry terminals, Highway 1, the Coquihalla, the Hope Princeton Highway, possibly other locations. Mike Farnworth is known as the top cop in the province, but rank and file police officers now say they are gravely concerned about this plan. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Brian Sove. He is the president of the National Police Federation. That is the union at the RCMP. They represent around 6,500 Mounties in BC. Brian, thanks for coming on once again. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, I appreciate your time. What are your concerns here about the pl- your, this plan for roadblocks and checkpoints? Uh, well, it's a little overarching, uh, and you know we're really looking forward to actually seeing what the minister is going to propose tomorrow. Um, so at the moment, we're just expressing our concerns that if uh, it comes to fruition with what he stated earlier in the week, that this is going to be a stretch for our members. Um, and as was evidenced in Ontario last weekend, uh, it may be going too far. I don't know if British Columbians uh, want to give up all of their rights. Why would it be a stretch for the police? Manpower, on the one hand. Uh, you know, we've had a challenging couple of years in policing, trying to rebuild the trust of the public and maintain that trust. Um, something like this, where you have random stops, the ability to pull someone over for whatever, prove to me why you're here not for, uh, for non-essential or essential reasons, um, could erode that trust further could uh, create scenarios where you end up with a member of the public and a police officer having a disagreement and getting into a use of force scenario. Maybe it becomes an independent investigations office file. All these things are things that should be thought about before we uh, move closer to expanding police powers. Brian, you represent the union at the RCMP, so you represent the workers. What about management at the RCMP? Are you hearing from chiefs, RCMP chiefs and, and the commanders? Do they share your concerns? Uh, I don't think they've shared them publicly. I know the BCRCMP is probably discussing things with the minister's office. That's above my pay grade. But, you know, from, from my perspective, we have to look at it from our membership. Uh, This government's been in power closing in on four years. There's been very little increase in funding to uh, improve the resource levels on the ground from this government. And there was very little, if any, in this past budget on Tuesday. Uh, They've enacted police committees to go on reform, which is a great thing. Let's look at that. But 
are we really focused on the well-being of police officers and the maintenance of public trust by expanding authorities so that they have unilateral discretion? Okay, you mentioned that you think that this possibly goes too far, and we've seen Ontario back down on some similar police powers, and there was actually a, a very emotional apology this morning from the Premier of Ontario about that. Why, when you say it goes too far, what you mean you think this could be unconstitutional, illegal? It could be. I mean, it remains to be seen. The minister still has to uh, come out with their orders. And really, the, the, the letter we wrote to uh, Minister Farnworth, as well as our uh, release to the public, was maybe you should talk to us and maybe we can come to common ground uh, before we go on far-reaching and expanding mandates and the ability for police officers to do things. Let's engage in a discussion. That hasn't happened. Okay, when you when you found out about this, were you blindsided on it? You had not been consulted about it beforehand? Well, obviously, I watched the Ontario uh, boondoggle over the weekend, um, and seeing COVID rates go up with the third wave throughout Canada, obviously, there are some thoughts that different ministers will implement different changes. Uh, but no, we weren't consulted on it. Uh, and that's all we're asking for is to sit down and have a discussion about how we can best uh, improve British Columbians through what about the crisis. what about the emergency that we're in here now we've got these variants spreading we're hearing about even scarier variants maybe being in British Columbia right now the, the cases are high it's a public health emergency what about what about that angle of it or that part of it doesn't that mean that we have the, the province has to take extraordinary measures Oh, I think the province may have to take extraordinary measures. Um, however, if you're going to be asking six to 7,000 police officers to do something, you yeah. might want to talk to those that represent those police officers and have some fulsome discussion with the BCRCMP, the NPF, and the government to figure out what is reasonable in the circumstances. Last, qu- last question yeah. for you, Brian. Are you hearing any frustration from police officers that at the same time the government is talking about a crackdown on on travel by British Columbians in the province, that we continue to see some unchecked sort of street parties, uh, beach parties going on without any real enforcement? Is that frustrating? Well, I think it's frustrating to our members, which you have to realize is they haven't gone home, right? They have been at work day in, day out since this pandemic started. And, and when I talk about resource levels, I'm talking about the mandate that has been increased. They've been enforcing public health orders from day one. So in addition to the everyday 911 calls, the all the car accidents, all the speeding tickets, all everything that they do on a regular basis, Now they've been enforcing public health orders for the last year and at the same time not being prioritized for vaccinations until recently. And even now there are challenges to have our frontline police officers vaccinated ahead of time. So there's a there's a massive concern from our membership across the province um, about the added job duties that the minister is putting on them. Do you want to everything? Do you want them to back off on this plan? Like they did in Ontario? I think they want to, I want them to be reasonable. Um, and part of that reasonableness is really maybe give us a call and let's sit down and have a chat. Uh, and, you know, come up with something that would meet all British Columbians and all members of the RCMP's needs and, and, and resource levels. Thank you for coming on this morning. Thanks, Mike.
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the human rights tragedy in China now, the plight of China's Uyghur Muslim minority. More than a million people placed in these camps, internment camps, or so-called re-education camps, the disappearances, the surveillance police state. For people outside of China, this is a very secretive region of the country. It's very difficult, if not impossible, for Western news media, for example, to travel in this region and document what's going on. And that's why I'm so excited to speak to my next guests, Gary and Andrea Dick. They are a couple from Manitoba who actually lived and worked in the Xinjiang region of China among the Uyghur Muslims for 10 years. And they are now speaking out about what they witnessed there. And I'm very pleased to welcome them to the show. Gary and Andrea, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us on the show. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's my honor to have you here. Andrea, let me go to you first. I, I find it extraordinary that you guys were there on the front, on the front uh, lines here in this region for 10 years. Uh, can you tell me how a couple from Manitoba ended up uh, ended up living there for ten years? How'd that happen? Oh, we we went to Central Asia in our early twenties and and just kept uh, getting involved in different development projects. And then yeah. we started a large scale compost um, factory in in the Xinjiang region, and just happened to be there when this was all unfolding. Right. And Gary, you guys had a, a composting business there. So you were like, were you helping local farmers? Was that the idea? Yeah, low income farmers. We would take yeah. in their, their farm waste and turn it into compost and sell some of it to, for a profit. And, and uh, so, yeah, we worked very closely with the farming community there. Well, I salute you. That's amazing that you did that. When did you first arrive in that region of China? Uh, where we started our business we, it was 2014. But uh, we first did some language study in the capital in 2008 or 2007, even. Right. And, and Andrea, what was it like at the start? Was it, was it peaceful and normal when you first got there? Um, there were tensions just kind of generally. Um, there were some, you know, the, the, the Uyghur people tended to try to, to preserve their culture already, you know, tr- eating their own food and even um, just just kind of keeping to themselves you could feel it but it was definitely nothing like what happened later okay gary when did it start to change yeah i think i mean after there was some riots in the uh, the capital uh, in 2009 and and things became much tighter the police state you know patrols uh security cameras started coming in more and more police being hired and uh, then, especially 2015, 2016, uh, just, yeah, we started hearing about young men being taken away and, and, and even further tighter controls. And, and uh, then we really felt in 2015, 2016, something's going really wrong here, not in a good direction. Right. And for the people who were working on your farms, were they, were they largely Uyghur Muslims, the people that you were working closely with on a, on a daily basis, Andrea? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the employees at um, Gary's business were mostly Uyghurs, and um, we also had had friends of, of all the nationalities, actually, in the area. Um, our our mm-hmm. kids were playing with Uyghur kids on the streets, and, and we just, wow. we lived among them. Yeah. Okay, that's amazing. So, Gary, what did you see happen? Like, did the people who were working for you, did they start to disappear? Were they, did a lot of them go to these detention camps? Yeah, not the ones that worked with us per se, but, uh, you know, I would go with my local sales agent, you know, every week or so we'd go into a you know, different village. And, uh, you know, we did that for a few years. And, and starting in 2017, for sure, we would be going into a village 
uh, you know, like a few thousand people. And usually we see hundreds of people on the street, but all of a sudden we're, there was hardly just a handful. And we would look at each other and, and say, hey, are, you know, where are the people? You know, there's, there's not very many people on the street. And it was because some were being taken to the camps and also because others were just fearful, you know, that they didn't want to be taken out in the camps. So they're kind of staying out of the public. Wow. Andrea, do you guys speak the language there? We did. We spoke yeah. the language and, uh, yeah, just interacted closely with people. That's amazing. What were they telling you? Like when, when these internment camps started to be set up and people were taken away, what did, uh, what did people tell you? One, one woman, um, she was actually used as one of the cadres to go like two nights in, every, in a different home. Every, every, every day she was sleeping in the different village homes to teach the restrictions. And she told me they'd taken away 30% of the people and were aiming for 80%. Another woman who just worked in an office just, just cried one day and said, everything we do, the people over us say, if you don't do this, we'll send you to school. If you don't do this, we'll send you to the schools. Wow. Speaking to Gary and Andrea Dick from Manitoba, they spent 10 years living in the Xinjiang region of China among the Uyghur Muslims and now telling their story. So, Gary, uh, do people come back from these camps? Have you ever talked to anyone who's been to these camps and then come back? Yeah, not, not, I haven't, uh, only just a couple, but um, very few people have been able to get out of the camps. But there has been some recently, and uh, they've actually been able to get out of the country and then tell their story. And uh, if you look online, there's just some amazing stories of people that have been in the camp and, and the horrific conditions there. Right. What kind, of, what kind of conditions were you hearing about? Oh, yeah. There was, uh, what we're hearing about was rape, uh, torture, you know, electrocution, um, you know, lots of interrogations, uh, you know, cells of 60 people. You go to the bathroom, for example, and you come back and, you're, you know, obviously your place to lie down is no more. And uh, just, yeah, a lot of, you know, propaganda, you know, class teaching again and again, rote learning and, and uh, just very, life was, was gone, yep. Oh my God, this, that is horrifying. Uh, Andrea, what about the, uh, is this like a police surveillance state? Like, is this like a height, it mm-hmm. seems like a height from what we've understand in the reporting, the limited reporting that some media have done there. You know, there, there's a lot of evidence of like a high-tech surveillance police state. Is that what you saw there? Absolutely. We had uh, police on every major intersection, standing Mm -hmm. guard, marching in between, and police vans circling the blocks. Um, we, by the end, we had to do, go through facial recognition just to get into our apartment complex. Every time we would drive to an intersection, there'd be a high resolution camera taking our picture. Yeah. And were people afraid because of that, Andrea? Absolutely. You could fear, you could feel the fear, but you couldn't see it. People just kept Mm. a very calm, composed, outward, um, expression because they did not want to grab attention. Right. And Gary, were you were you and Andrea scared at all, or did you feel like because you were Westerners, you're outsiders, that you were safe, or did you feel fearful too? Yeah, I mean, we were definitely our, our main concern was for for the Uyghur people and the ethnic minorities around us. Uh, but yeah, it just felt so crazy at, at the same time, and wondering where is this going at the time, and, and you know what what's next. So yeah, there was there was fear, and but it was mostly concern for for our friends. Right, right. How many of, so the people that you know in the workforce, like Andrea mentioned that maybe 30% of the people were taken away to these camps. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that would sound about yeah. right. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. When yeah, did based you... on what I could see in the villages, that uh, that would 
Concur. When did you, were people scared to talk to you as an outsider, as a Westerner, or would people be feel confident in opening up to you when they speak to you in private? There was a mix in, in that there was both the fear of connecting with us and being seen as somebody who was connecting with an outside influence in case that was um, an issue. But at the same time, when they were private with us, if they had felt safe to come to us, there was a, there was sort of a, it felt like an outlet that they could share with somebody. Yeah. 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 Gary, when did you decide to leave Xinjiang in China and why did you decide to leave? Yeah, we decided uh, we left in May 2018 and uh, the visa restrictions for basically all foreigners was, was getting pretty much impossible to fulfill. And uh, we could just, yeah, for us, my family, we have three kids, and it was just just taking its toll on us, uh, you know, socially and psychologically and, and seeing what's happening to our friends and, and not being able to do anything there about it. And uh, in the business, too, was, was uh, you know, we were seeing the farmers go and it was, it was hurting and just feeling, yeah, we, you know, we're becoming a liability uh, to our friends, you know, being, being known and, uh, and reaching out. So we had to just move on and, and come back to Canada. Okay. When you say you became a liability, do you mean like people who were your friends, maybe they would fall under suspicion from the police? Yeah, exactly. It was and, already, and for that yeah. reason, be taken. Yeah. yeah. Andrea, go ahead. What do you want to say? Sorry. We heard from some, some of our friends started to be hesitant to meet with us. And um, we knew of some people who had been taken to camps because they had gone internationally on a trip uh, several years earlier. Um, others were, were taken because they'd received an international phone call. So just that connection was starting to be risky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you left, what, what is the message you want to get out now. I know you're speaking uh, later today in a, in a panel that's being put on by the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, which I think is fantastic, and I'll have some details on that for the listeners if they want to mm-hmm. join, listen to you on that panel coming up later today. What is the message that you want Canadians and the rest of the world to hear here, Andrea? Oh, yeah. just be aware and, uh, yeah, come to the panel and listen to the Uyghur people. This is not... Yeah. This is not an exaggeration. This is happening in our world. It's shocking, but it's there. Yeah. Would you say it's a genocide? Is that what's going on in China? Absolutely. Yeah. Gary, would you agree? Yeah, I would say it's a very systemic, very well-planned out uh, genocide. Yeah. What do you think about the reaction and the response from the world community? I mean... You know, we've seen lots of countries paying attention here, many countries formally accusing China of genocide. The Canadian House of Commons recently voted unanimous to recognize a genocide going on against the Uyghur people in China, although notably uh, the Justin Trudeau cabinet abstaining from that vote in the House of Commons. But do you think that Canada and other global governments, Gary, are being are being firm enough in their response to this? Yeah, I mean, there's always more that can be done, but I think it's good that at least they're they're saying they're speaking and uh, yeah, it's, that's that fine line. How do you how do you deal with it? And and I think you know my my concern is somehow that the, the government of China can somehow there there can be a softening of a heart or somehow they can hear it instead of just you know putting it back pushing it back, but somehow they can start to really think about what we need to do for their for their people and for their nation in a, in a good way. Yeah. What What do you think, Andrea? Yeah, I think that we need awareness and that um, 
you know, it's, it's difficult. Um, but, but I think we need to, to see what's really happening. We, we, everyone's seen movies and watched books about the Holocaust and, and we want this, we thought this would never happen again and here it's happening. And so we need to have a concerted response that makes sense for that. Okay. We've also heard, there's been lots of stories that have come out from, from this region of China. It's extraordinary that you guys were there so long and seeing some of this stuff up close. I mean, we've heard about China trying to cut the Uyghur birth rate through forced abortions and, and sterilization. Gary, did you see, did you see or hear anything like that while you were there? Um, not so much, but I know in the villages, yeah. uh, one time they, they called and everyone had to go in, uh, to the clinics, uh, for DNA sampling and, and, uh, oh. testing and, and, uh, you know, it just seemed very odd to me that everyone, uh, had to go in and, uh, yeah, we've heard reports from those that have been in the camp, for example, that there were there have been sterilizations, forced abortions like that in the camps for sure. And and yeah, I think there's and, been heavy fines in the past, and and there's been lots of policies that way to kind of snuff out those those those. Uh, and talking yeah. talking with women, I heard many examples of forced forced uh, abortions and and birth control methods. Yeah. Wow. wow. This must have been heartbreaking to witness this up close and to see this happening to your friends. Andrea, would you say, I mean, what was it like emotionally for you to s- sort of watch what was going oh, on? It was it was absolutely heartbreaking. And the whole process, just watching things start to happen. And at first, people not um, kind of able to respond. Like, it's, it's sort of shocking and you're being told it's for your safety. But but for us, okay. seeing some of the strange things that, that started and, and just, yeah, it was totally heartbreaking. Just watching the family separations, people not able to mm-hmm. be together for various reasons. It was just devastating. Yeah, yeah there's have- no other family that we knew there that was all intact. Like every member of the family was still together. We were basically the only intact family. I applaud both of you for speaking out. It's extraordinary perspective that you have here. And thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for Thank having you us. Thank you so much for having me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Uh, all right, welcome back to the show. If you're a smoker, get set to feel some pain in your wallet here in this week's budget. Tobacco taxes in British Columbia on the rise again. Let's talk about that and other issues around smoking with my guest, Jack Boomer from the Clean Air Coalition of BC. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. How much are tobacco taxes going up here? 
Well, basically in BC, uh, as of July 1st, uh, tobacco taxes are going about, up about six bucks a carton. Uh, so that's about 60 cents a pack. And then I believe the federal government recently increased taxes about four bucks a carton. So they'll be going up about 40 cents a pack as well. And I think that was uh, almost immediate. So, and there's a range of other taxes that are going up in terms of roll your own and uh, on vaping products. And this is a good thing because one of the important things is when tobacco taxes increase, it actually inspires people to go, my goodness, a pack of cigarettes is way too much, um, oh. and I think I'm going to start to uh, quit or taper down and uh, smoke fewer cigarettes. Okay, this one kind of hits close to home to me. My parents were both smokers, and smoking killed my dad. He died of lung cancer. My mother died of a really brutal stroke, um, and she was a heavy smoker, too. Uh, so, you know, I think smoking is something that if people can quit, I encourage you to quit. If you haven't started, don't start. Uh, I've seen the devastation it can cause up close, but I, I just wonder about whether taxes can be a, a, a real dissuasion from people to, to stop smoking or to start or to even start in the, in the first place. Like when you take like that's a pretty hefty increase in taxes on tobacco. What did you say? It was another six bucks a carton. It's six in BC as of July first. It'll be six bucks a carton. And six bucks more, own. right? Like six bucks yeah. more than it is now, right? So, yeah. so a carton of cigarettes going to go up six bucks. Absolutely, and yeah, you so. know the 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 thing, Mike, is that um, what we what we know from the research is that there's three really important things that we know work to encourage people to quit smoking, and one of them is raising the price of cigarettes. On uh, because what that does is there's a certain number of people that will, as they say, they'll say to heck with it. I'm not paying the government six bucks more a pack and or for a carton. And what it does is um, so that inspires some people, not everybody, but some people to take a look at their addiction to nicotine and find another and and say um, we're going to cut down or right. we're going to find a way to 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 quit. The other thing that we know is smoke-free places. If you make it harder for people to smoke uh, and protect people from what we know are the cancer-causing agents in secondhand smoke, it will actually inspire people to quit because when you make it harder for people to smoke, like in bars, pubs, restaurants, which has happened almost around the world now, um, what happens is people smoke fewer cigarettes. And again, they say, I'm not going to smoke more cigarettes. Did, Did you ever smoke yourself, Jack? You know, um, my dad was a, was a lifelong smoker. Uh, he quit when I was uh, a teen, but I'm the youngest in the family, so I'm literally the baby boomer. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, so uh, he quit smoking, and but he switched to chewing tobacco, and he chewed yeah. tobacco till the end of his life, and it was a kind of kind of a gross thing. But I tried smoking when I was in my about ten or twelve at my aunt and uncle's farm. I rolled yeah. cigarettes because it was kind of fun to roll them. But really, I tried it for a week, and, and for me, I just thought it was kind of a crazy thing to do. But I was 10 or 11, and <laughs> I just looked at my father and, and my aunts and uncles who smoked and thought it isn't something that I wanted to do. Yeah, okay. I had sort, uh, sort of a similar thing because when I was in, um, I remember when I was in university, a couple of my friends were smokers, and I thought, okay, I, I'm going to be a smoker. I, I think I'll start smoking. So I remember I went to the store. I bought a package of cigarettes. I think I bought some Players Lights or something, and for two days I, I tried to be a smoker and uh, I got so sick like right. to smoke like I was getting headaches I was getting lightheaded I felt like I was gonna pass out I got sick so yeah. I was like I was like hell the hell with this so I quit I quit after two <laughs> days 
But um, I just I often think about that and think, oh, thank goodness I didn't like it because who knows I could have got I could have got hooked just like my parents were hooked. But when you take a look, I'm looking at the government's um, tax rates right now on the BC Finance Ministry website. These are the taxes that are coming into effect on July 1st in our province. On a single cigarette, you'll be paying 32 and a half cents in tax on one cigarette. On a pack, it'll be six dollars and fifty cents on a pack of twenty. And on a carton of cigarettes, sixty-five dollars in yeah. total in total taxes. Sixty-five bucks. Like every time you buy a carton of cigarettes, you're giving sixty-five bucks to the government in direct taxes. So you think that that, that stops people from smoking, right? Like what? If, but what if you're addicted already? I mean, aren't you just going to pay whatever you got to pay? Well. First and foremost, people, uh, there are many people that have been addicted to nicotine and they have quit successfully and that there are programs in place that the government has in place to assist people with their addiction. And so we do know that, um, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword. We do know that um, a significant number of people will uh, are, continue to be addicted, but there are ways to assist people. The government has yeah. the free patch and gum program that people can get that are proven effective ways to, to assist people. There are pharmacotherapies like Shampix, which will assist, and uh, Bupropion, which will assist people, Zyban, to uh, quit uh, successfully as well. There is the Quit Now program in place. There's texting programs. There's other supports that are in place to assist people with their addiction. And we do know that one of the best things people can do for their health is to quit smoking. Yeah. In fact, many people might go, uh, uh, on average, people smoke about 16 cigarettes a day, smokers. Well, if we can uh, shift and get people to be smoking fewer cigarettes a day, then that, again, inspires people to go, gee, if I'm able to cut down to uh, 10, 12, or fewer, they might say, to hell with it, I'm just going to quit altogether. And okay. uh, those are important things that people can do. Okay, Jack, let me ask you about another campaign you're involved with, and that's the smoke-free uh, living spaces, especially in apartment buildings and condominiums. So I know that you've been campaigning for a long time to uh, ban smoking in condos, ban smoking in, in apartment buildings, right? Where are we at with that right now? Well, you know, we continue to work hard at this. Uh, we Believe it or not, uh, we started in 2004, which was 17 wow. years ago. Yeah. And we wrote our first pamphlet about this, and we were the first in Canada to do that. And where we are at right now is the Heart and Stroke Foundation and the Canadian Cancer Society are very concerned about this issue. And what we've been doing is we've been advocating or encouraging the government to look at the myriad programs that are in place and to say it is entirely possible to protect people from second and smoking multi-unit dwellings. People that go to work or, you know, because of COVID, people are working from home now more than they are going to work, but, uh, or working from home. When people go to work, they're protected in their workplace through WCB regulations, through provincial legislation. When people go to their home, their castle, they're not protected from secondhand smoke in their multi-unit dwellings or in condos or stratas. And so, or condos and, and rental buildings. And so what we've been right. doing is we've been asking the government to do various things like when people move into a new rental or a rental unit, that they are informed what are the smoking rules. Uh, what, who smokes in the building, where do people smoke, because people don't realize it'll be an issue until they're actually in the unit, and then their neighbor starts smoking. 
um, yeah, and yeah. same with stratas. We're having greater success with stratas because it's easier for a condominium to put in r- rules in place through their bylaws. And some have many of uh, are exploring those options at smokefreehousingbc.ca, where we have a, a lot of rules and tools to help people with stratas. It's a little bit harder with rentals because once you have your rental agreement in place, if it does not have a no smoking clause there, it is harder to put one in after a rental agreement has been signed. And so right. people have to be grandfathered in other things. All right. Welcome back. Talking smoking and tobacco taxes with my guest, Jack Boomer, Clean Air Coalition. Let's go to your phone calls. Peter and Burnaby. Hey, Peter. Hey, first of all, Jack, thank you for the good work that you're doing. Really appreciate it. Uh, a quick anecdotal story. My uh, father smoked until he nearly burned the house down. And wow. <laughs> never smoked again after that. What, did he fall uh, asleep with a cigarette or something? He, no, he put oh. it in a garbage can that was plastic. Oh. And it didn't totally smolder. Or it was still smoldering. Lit up the, the balcony on the back, the wood balcony on the back. Thankfully, somebody came and pounded on the door. Anyway, oh, man. Uh, bottom line is, uh, I'm in a condo now. I'm actually the condo president or the strata president. And it this is the single biggest issue that we have to deal with in terms of unpleasantness for neighbors who have to smell the smoke wafting in and it's just inappropriate um i think a total ban is absolutely what we need and i appreciate the work being done toward that okay peter thank you for the call like right now jack some condo strata units they are smoke free like there are some smoke free condo buildings right absolutely yeah yeah and um but but there's no central registry of them right like if you're trying to find one is there a way to is there a way to centrally is there a central website where they're all listed or or anything like that? You know what? In the early days, um, we actually kept a, a website um, where people could register because we were trying to say you know there are others that have done it. We um, are so woefully underfunded uh, that uh, our website is held together by prayer and a duct tape, um, and we can't even right. update it because it's so out of date. And we've been asking for support to uh, update the website. Uh, with that, but uh, bottom line is there is no central registry. Well, what what uh, percentage what percentage of condo buildings are smoke free? Would you estimate? We have no idea, seriously, because the problem is, uh, what's great is that many come to the site, they get the tools and resources that we have on the site that are very relevant, and they download them, and then they make their building their bylaws hundred percent smoke free. Uh, and just as the Peter mentioned, you know that they're you know the the one of the top three issues that Stratus deal with is definitely uh, smoking complaints and people smoking. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so uh, this is one of the things that I think people go, oh, well, you know, it's a legal product. And, you know, and absolutely it's a legal product. We're not saying people can't smoke. It's just that their smoke should not affect the uh, quiet right. enjoyment or the, become a nuisance for others. Okay, Steve on the line in Coquitlam. Hey, Steve. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I quit smoking uh, 11 years ago, and I'm really glad I did. Uh, how much is a pack now, anyways? A pack of cigarettes, Jack? How much is a pack of cigarettes? I think it's in the uh, it, it varies, but I I think they're uh, 10 to $17, kind of in that oh, range. Yeah, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. I'm really glad I did. I pretty much did it for my wife. You know, I just didn't want her to see me in the coffin, and that's what did it. You know, a little bit of Nicorette gum in the in the cheek. But yeah, I'm in a condo as well, and the guy across the, uh, across the hall from me, he uh, 
Uh, I mean, you can really smell the smoke uh, coming from his place, and I know he drinks a lot. So I'm concerned and paranoid a bit about him passing out with a cigarette in his hand, even though we do have sprinklers all over our condos. But it is a concern. Thank you for taking my call. Okay, thanks a lot for the call, Steve. Let's squeeze some more in here because we have lots of callers. Shannon and Langley. Hi, Shannon. Good day, Shannon. It's Shannon Claypool. I talked to you recently about my rodeo. Um, oh, yeah. Hey. I got a funny story. My dad was a two-pack of Black Cat plain cigarettes his entire life. Whoa. And uh, when my brother is six years older than I got caught smoking, my mom's attitude was, well, if you're going to smoke, you're going to smoke. So she went and got the biggest cigar she could find, made my 12-year-old brother smoke the whole thing, and when I was six years old, I was taking the red wagon to the corner store to get uh, six pops so he could wash the taste out of his mouth. <laughs> and at six years of age, I thought, I'm smart enough not to be put through that. And I've never. So it worked. It worked. Okay. It worked. Okay. Shannon, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I've heard that. I've heard of people doing that as a disincentive. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Well, maybe it's effective. I don't know. Alex and Delta. Hey, Alex. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good. Go ahead. Um, just like uh, the marijuana and we have to go to the black market to get reasonable prices, it's just like that now. Um, sure, the pack of cigarettes or carton of cigarettes are going to go up, but I could get a carton of cigarettes for 40 to $45 on the black market. Where do you, okay. go, to get, where do you go to get that? You, know, you just have to call a number and they'll bring it to you or somebody else knows really? the person that does it, yes. What, are they like smuggled, smuggled cigarettes? Sure, you could say it's smuggled cigarettes, it's black market. But the thing is, you can keep on forcing us and forcing us and forcing us to uh, raise up the prices and try and quit. But the thing is, you said a pack of cigarettes is $17 something. No, in the stores, I could get a pack of cigarettes for uh, $15.25. So not all businesses raise the prices up to the maximum amount. I know lots of businesses. I even tell the businesses, raise it up another $2. You're allowed to. They're like, no, 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 no. This is good enough for us. So... Hmm. Okay, Alex, thank you for the call. Jack, what about that black market kind of underground cigarette business? Is that, how big is that? Um, you know, um, because it's the black market, I, have, uh, I don't know how big the market is, and there's no denying that there are people that find ways uh, to uh, purchase cigarettes um, uh, that are more modestly priced that may come from other places. But yeah. at the end of the day, um, the majority of people do get their cigarettes through stores, through retail outlets. Sure, of and course. And so, um, you know, I, I'm not denying that there's a there's a black market in place, but what we are looking at is that there will be people that, regardless of what their addiction is, they will find ways to satisfy it. And a nicotine addiction is definitely an addiction. And therefore, what we hope is that people who are addicted will find ways to get either clean nicotine through the patch or gum or find ways to that will inspire them to quit or cut down on the number of cigarettes. Because there's also problems sometimes with uh, uh, cigarettes that are manufactured that aren't uh, followed following some sort of standard, even though we know 50% of people who okay. smoke cigarettes will die from their use and the way that they're intended. So, Okay, Jack, we just got 30 seconds here. What's that website again if people want more information about uh, smoke-free housing? smokefreehousingbc.ca and go. there are tips, tools, and resources there and if people want support to quit smoking they can go to their pharmacy and ask for uh, free patch and gum. Uh, it's it's a tremendous resource. BC has one of the best programs in place and I would encourage people to consider that. Thank you, Jack. Thanks, Mike.
Today is Thursday, April 22nd, 2021. And though it feels like any other day, it's an important milestone for Canadians and South Koreans. Because today is the 70th anniversary of the Battle of Kapyong. Retired Major Murray Edwards is a survivor of the Korean War. And 70 years ago, he took part in the Battle of Kapyong. Well, at the time, I was the uh, battalion intelligence officer, and I was with the uh, Colonel Stone, the commanding officer. Like many of his fellow soldiers, Edwards did his duty, even if it took him to a strange and faraway land. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, most of us had never heard of Korea. Oh, I, I knew that it was going to be a, a, a conflict. Uh, I mean, having uh, lived through World War II, uh, I had no uh, illusions about what we were going to face. What the Canadians faced at the Battle of Kapyong was the combined firepower of the Chinese and North Korean armies. With United Nations forces determined to hold on to the important Kapyong Valley, Edwards and the Canadians did what the South Koreans and even the U.S. Marines could not, which was successfully holding their position against countless communist forces. The uh, American unit uh, was retreating uh, before the uh, uh, Koreans, and uh, we were in a, a, a what we might call a blocking position and covered the American retreat, and then were able to stop the, the Korean advance. The three-day-long battle tested the Canadians in combat. At one point, their position was completely surrounded by Chinese and North Korean troops, and the only way to stock up on supplies was to request an airdrop on their position. But such gambles paid off, and through sheer determination, courage, and strategic positioning, the Canadians shattered the communist advance. But had history gone another way, and if the Canadians had somehow lost their position, Murray believes the entire war could have turned sideways. Oh, very much so. And if it had happened, of course, the country would have been completely communist. Although Edwards hadn't previously heard of Korea before arriving with the rest of the 2nd Battalion to help in the war, one thing immediately stuck out to him when he met the beleaguered Korean citizens. Once we were there, one of the things that uh, is outstanding in my memory uh, are the people in Korea generous in uh, their relationship and made no bones about the fact that they appreciated what was being done for them. And I think uh, at the time for many South Koreans, uh, it was a very bewildering period, something, you know, that they'd never experienced, never expected. According to Edwards, those messages of thanks and gratitude have never stopped, not even after 70 years. And the nice part of it is the the people themselves uh, still appreciate what was done all those years ago. They've they've remained uh, appreciative right to this day. They're still saying thank you. I spoke with the Consulate General of the Republic of Korea in Vancouver, Pyongwon Chung, about the role that Canadians played in the Korean War and the significance of their presence. I think it, it, it's huge. When, you know, the Korean War broke out in 1950, the Canadian government responded very quickly by sending 27,000 troops. This number is especially significant for two reasons. It made Canada the second biggest troop contributor. 
and it represents over a quarter of the Canadian army, which only had around 100,000 troops at the time. And 516 Canadian soldiers lost their lives fighting in the war, the supreme sacrifice. Canadian soldiers bravely fought in significant operations and battles like the Battle of Gapyeong where they protected Korean capital Seoul from capture. Without the support of Canada in the war, I think Korea would not be thriving democracy as it is today. The Consulate General confirmed what Marie had told me, that even to this day, both the Korean government and the Korean people remain eternally grateful to their Canadian allies. Korean citizens know the sacrifice and service of Canadian veterans very well and will never forget their contribution. To express the gratitude of Korean citizens, the Korean government hosts a revisit program that pays for Canadian veterans to travel to Korea and allow them to witness how peaceful modern-day Korea is. Thank thanks to their brave actions. The government also offers many programs and services to veterans and their descendants to display our never-ending appreciation. For example, throughout the pandemic, our government has sent over 100,000 KF-94 masks to Canadian veterans and their descendants across Canada. The Consulate General stressed the importance of honoring those brave Canadians who answered the call 70 years ago. In celebrating this anniversary with commemorative ceremonies, I hope that we bring awareness to this important moment in our shared history. And it is important to look back on history to honor the sacrifices of so many Canadian soldiers. They came to the help of Koreans in our most difficult time. And as Consul General, I think it is my duty to express the gratitude of the Korean people. Now 101 years old, Murray Edwards lives at the Veterans Lodge in Victoria. But he told me that he had the chance to visit Korea some years ago and return to the Kapyong Valley. It was, uh, how should I put it, it was from night to day. It was a very primitive country when I was there when I went back. Uh, it had moved into the 20th century. And while Edwards laughed off any suggestion that he was a hero, our conversation ended with him telling me this. No, but looking back, we were, we were just happy that we were at the right place at the right time. 